2: We guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste, or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products, because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans, and yet there's complexity at every turn.
3: I wanted to take the opportunity to reflect on the significance of Independence Day, from the year it was established in 1776, with the signing of the Declaration of Independence by the Second Continental Congress in Philadelphia, to our modern-day celebrations that include backyard barbecues and fireworks displays. My guest is a longtime friend and fellow historian, Alan Gelzo. He is director of the James Madison Program Initiative on Politics and Statesmanship, and senior research scholar in the Council of the Humanities. I'm sorry, and senior research scholar in the Council of the Humanities at Princeton University. He is also the best-selling author of Gettysburg, and he has a new book coming out this September, Robert E. Lee: A Life. I have never talked with him without learning an immense amount. Alan, I'm so glad you could join us. And I want to start, Alan, because I know you're one of those very rare people. You actually sort of have the history inside you. You live it. You feel it. It's not just some abstract knowledge. And so I'm curious. If you go back to, say, January, February, March, 1775, how much do you think they were in the process of really talking themselves into moving towards independence, and how much were they just caught up in a dialogue that wasn't quite clear yet?
4: That's a difficult question to answer because, of course, there's no polling and no polling questions in the 18th century. We have the writings of a number of people who reflected on exactly those issues and the distance between those points. So even with that, it's still hard to come up uh, with a figure and say, well, this is where the trend of things was going. and This is the point at which public opinion, such as it was in the 18th century, had developed. And yet I think two things it is safe to say. One is that by the beginning of 1775, most Americans realized that there was going to have to be a completely dramatic reshuffle of the relationship between the American colonies and Great Britain, and that there was a very strong risk that it was going to come to blows. And people had by the beginning of 1775, begun to get used to the fact that there was something coming over the horizon that could be extremely challenging. The other thing that enters into this is they really didn't know quite how they were going to do this rearrangement of things. There were a number of people who believed right up to the brink that you could still work out a deal with Britain. Even Thomas Jefferson believed that right up until 1775, there just might be a possibility that the imperial government in London could be persuaded to adopt something of what we might today recognize as a commonwealth model on the relationship between America and Britain. And even if it didn't take that shape, many people still were puzzling over what kind of shape this new arrangement would take. For some, it might be outright independence, cut the ties completely with Great Britain something which was almost unthinkable. First of all, these were all people who tended to think of themselves as British in one way or another, and also because Britain is the greatest imperial power on the planet at that point, and the idea of these colonies militarily, in some fashion or other, challenging Great Britain was almost more than they could fathom. So what we're looking at at the beginning of 1775 is a lot of confusion, a lot of hesitancy, a lot of uncertainty, and yet One thing which was certainly clear was they were not taking any steps back from everything that had happened over the previous 10 years. There was going to have to be a new relationship with Great Britain, whether the King of England liked it or not. And they were going to have to explore the permutations of that relationship, which could take anything from simply reshuffling the relationship between the colonies and Britain to perhaps even outright independence There were some people who, in fact, were willing to use the I-word as early as the beginning of 1775.
3: It's interesting because it, in a sense, begins to drive us towards the notion that this really was a straight-up issue of whether or not you were going to be free. There weren't these abstract, secondary, you know, it's not just about the right to taxation or this or that, but it's a question of where is the locus of power?
4: Well, this is true because everything that had flowed into the minds of the people who meet in the Continental Congresses, the First Continental Congress from 1774, Second Continental Congress in 1775, everything that they had read, everything that they had learned about political theory and political science, even though they didn't use those particular terms for it had taught them things that were very different from the way human societies had been organized previously. Human societies up to this point had, by and large, been organized as hierarchies. And in that respect, they owed a great deal to the influence of Aristotle and Aristotelian philosophy. But they understood that the human societies were hierarchical in nature. Authority started at the top with a king, with a monarchy, then flowed down through the nobility and then finally got down to the commons. And then, you know, maybe below the commons there was a layer of serfs or slaves or other kinds of people who really didn't have much status at all. But it was a hierarchy in which authority starts at the top and comes down. Everything that these people had read in Enlightenment political philosophy, whether it was John Locke, whether it was the Baron Montesquieu, whether it was Cesare Beccaria, taught them the exact opposite, that the natural organization of society moved from the bottom up, and it moved not by authority and power, it moved by natural law. That was what they, the Enlightenment had discovered about the physical, scientific organization of the universe. People now transfer that to trying to understand the political organization of things. In Europe, that kind of thinking was read... It was very popular, but at the same time, people really couldn't take it very seriously because, look, Europe is all monarchies at this point. So people say, well, this is very great, Mr. Locke. This is very great, Baron Montesquieu. Wonderful thought experiment, but it's not going to happen in real terms. In America, it was different. Americans, in a sense, had, in their experience as colonies had lived out exactly the kind of political relationships that Locke and the other Enlightenment philosophers had described. And whereas in Europe it's read as a thought experiment, Americans read this and say, hey, this is the real thing. This is exactly how we came into being. So when Americans enter into this era of crisis between 1765 and 1775, they already come with a mindset that is against notions of hierarchy, that prizes notions of liberty, and sees society as a place where sovereignty, where authority, comes out of the people and moves upwards to whom the people delegate that authority. The fundamental value for them is always going to be liberty. So when they come to the Continental Congresses in 1774 and 1775, These delegates are already primed to think about liberty as the prime virtue and asking how political organization permits liberty to operate in the best and the most responsible fashion. That's what their assumptions are, and those assumptions could not have been more far removed from the kinds of assumptions that governed monarchs, tyrants, and despots 3,000 miles away in Europe.
3: And if I remember correctly, you're describing even among the enlightened people in Europe who have realized that it's not going to happen in their world, they're actually a minority because there's still a massive majority who are genuinely monarchs or who are hierarchically committed to very large, powerful systems that weigh from the top down. So that in a sense, the Americans are more isolated and are more unique than even a categorization of who they read would have implied. Is that a fair statement?
4: Yeah, this is exactly the case. Americans had a very unusual experience in their colonial past. When Britain sets out to establish colonies in the Americas, especially along the North American seacoast, the words set out really don't characterize how the British did it. The British did colonization by default. The British government really never set out to do colonization because, look, colonization is expensive, and the one thing that the British monarchy did not have through the 16th and the 17th century was a lot of spare change. So basically, Britain authorizes the establishment of colonies in America, in New York and Pennsylvania and Massachusetts and Maryland and Georgia. It basically organizes these colonies like franchise operations. And it says to a group of potential colony organizers, all right, here is a charter for a certain stretch of territory that we're claiming as our own. You guys go over there and you establish a colony, and please don't let us hear from you again, because we don't want to take responsibility for you. We're not going to send you soldiers. We're not going to send you money. We might send you a royal governor, but in most practical terms, the royal governors who were appointed for these colonies never actually crossed the Atlantic. They sent one of their lackeys or one of their lieutenants to become a de facto governor, a lieutenant governor in these colonies. So basically, Britain looks upon the colonies as a place where you take all of your unwanted social trash, okay? All those religious nuts with guns, all those debtors, all those people who in the 1680s Thomas King counts up as detracting from the wealth of the kingdom. You package them all together and you send them to North America and you hope devoutly you'll never hear from them again. Three generations pass. Oh, big surprise. Britain wakes up and suddenly finds out that it has an unfavorable balance of trade with its colonies, that all those social misfits whom it sent over to America, they turned out to be extraordinarily aggressive and prosperous. And now suddenly the imperial planners in London have to try to readjust what's going on between Britain and America because, from their point of view, America should exist for the benefit and the enrichment of Great Britain, not the other way around. Something very different had happened in America. Americans had made a world all pretty much on their own without a whole lot of direction from the people in London And the chief proof of that was the way they governed themselves. Because these 13 continental colonies in North America, they all created their own legislatures. That's a shocking thing when you think about it in the context of British imperial policy. They had no business creating legislatures. There's one legislature for all British subjects, and that's Parliament. But look, there's 3,000 miles of ocean in between London and the New World, so the colonies invented their own ad hoc legislatures. You get to 1765 and the decade after 1765, and what you really find is this. Americans had created their own world, a world which looked an awful lot like the world described in the thought experiments of the enlightened political philosophers, And now suddenly, the British imperial planners in London wanted to change all the rules for their own profit and benefit. And Americans basically said, no, we're really not going to go along with it. You know, many years, Newt, after the revolution, one of the captains of the militia that turned out at Lexington and Concord was interviewed by a young man who was writing a history of the revolution. Now, this takes place in the 1810s, 1820s. The exact date escapes me right at the moment. But they approached this former militia captain, and they said, well, why did you go out to meet the British? Was it for this reason? No, not that. Was it for that reason? No, not that. Well, why did you confront the British? And he said, look, young man, the reason we went out to fight the British was because we had always governed ourselves, and they intended that we shouldn't. And when you come right down to all the history of the American Revolution, that is really the bottom line. Americans were used to governing themselves. They really balked at the notion that now government was going to take place from far away in the hands of faceless bureaucrats in London.
3: I mean, isn't that, in a sense, it's a cultural, not a political moment?
4: Oh, it is. It is. And in itself, It is, you might say, the beginning of what we might call American exceptionalism. I mean, George Washington recognized this at one point when he said the timing of the founding of the American Republic was in itself remarkable because he said it occurred at just that moment when, for the first time, people were beginning to wake up to the real nature of the rights of humanity. And... Washington saw what was happening as not just, well, this is an incident in the history of the British Empire. No, for him, this was an incident in human history itself. When a people which had been prepared by their own experience to think of themselves as a people of liberty, now confronted an immediate political situation where in fact the defense of liberty became the important consideration. So yes, what happens with the American Revolution is really this extraordinary conjunction of a cultural and intellectual moment with a very specific set of political moments.
5: Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply. The
2: 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trial for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the campaign moment right now, wherever you're listening.
3: It's always seemed to me that the founding fathers had a particular deep belief in the Second Amendment, because they knew that had the British had weapons, and they hadn't, the revolution would have lasted three days.
4: Well, the Americans are really surprisingly well-armed, partly because you have most of the colonies protected by their own militias. Very few of the colonies lacked some kind of militia organization. And also, remember, in 1775, we're really not much more than a decade on from the French and Indian Wars known in Europe as the Seven Years' War. And many Americans, still alive then, had been veterans of those wars. They had the weapons of those wars. They knew how to use them. People are often surprised that the Minutemen who turn out at Lexington, and especially the ones who turned out at Concord, they're often surprised. How did they manage to face down organized British regulars and British Marines? Well, the answer was because many of the militiamen at Concord had fought in the wars before. They knew what military discipline was. They knew how to operate. They knew how to use their weapons. So what the British were encountering at Concord Bridge was not just a disorganized gaggle of farmers who were trying to figure out which end to load their ball and powder in. They were meeting people who were, in fact, quite skilled because of their previous experience in the colonial wars with how to use those weapons and how to fight. And so they did.
3: You know, in in that sense, I've always wondered if the scale of the British victory in 1765 wasn't sort of a genuinely mistaken thing, that they would have been better off to have found some excuse to have maintained some kind of French presence. Because once the French were gone, there was no reason for the Americans to seek the France from Great Britain. I mean, there was nobody in the neighborhood that was going to threaten them.
4: Ironically, this is true. In a sense, the British were too successful for their own good by eliminating the French threat. Because certainly through almost all of the 18th century, what is a constant theme for the American colonists is the threat posed by the French. The French not only in Canada, but the French who were making aggressive incursions into the Trans-Appalachia, who were acting in a way so as to contain and create barrier fortresses along the western fringe of British settlements. Oh yes, the American colonists had a healthy respect and fear of the French. The British victory in the Seven Years' War removes that threat, and with it, removes a sense of colonial anxiety. And connected with that, this is what makes it even harder for the British, I don't mean to say this sounding like I'm sympathizing with British policy, but what made this harder for the British was that at the end of the Seven Years' War, Britain now has to take responsibility for some kind of garrisoning of the North American colonies because, all right, the French are gone, but the Indian tribes are not. I mean, once the French pull out, that's immediately succeeded by Pontiac's conspiracy. So there's a continuing threat that way and Britain needs to garrison soldiers in North America. Well, the costs of garrisoning just 7,500 British soldiers in North America would have amounted to something on the order of about 250,000 pounds sterling a year. Britain was already in debt from the Seven Years' War. I mean, it could barely meet the interest payments on that debt. So the idea that It was going now to have to assume responsibilities and costs for garrisoning North America. That is really staggering. The British response to it is to try to pare back its garrisoning to the least possible degree, which of course gives an opening for disgruntled American colonists. But it also means that the British decide that, well, you know, we should make the colonists pay the bill for this garrisoning, which the colonists responded by saying, hey, we never did that before. Why are we having to pay for this now? And have you bothered to consult our colonial legislatures for permission to do that? From those two conclusions in the mid-1760s spring all the dissensions, the disagreements, the misunderstandings, and finally the violent confrontations that occur in 1775.
3: Do you think that there was also a degree to which, having watched the British operate the Americans were not as awestruck as they would have been 30 years earlier.
4: (laughs) Well, when you consider how the British operated in some places during the Seven Years' War, yeah, that's a perfectly legitimate conclusion you might draw. One of the most famous incidents, of course, from what we call the French and Indian War was the expedition of General Braddock marching into the Pennsylvania wilderness, assuming that redcoat regulars would easily take apart French fortifications and establish uh, British suzerainty over Western Pennsylvania, only to find themselves ambushed and humiliated at the hands of the French and their Indian allies. Certainly, that would have given many American observers uh, reason to question British military competence. But in fact, it actually doesn't get any better. There are a number of other incidents during the French and Indian War in which the leadership of the British military does not exactly shine. Another major example of this is what occurs at Fort Ticonderoga, which really becomes a slaughter of British soldiers who are badly led and who are put in a position just simply to be cut down by the French defenders of Fort Ticonderoga, like there were so many chickens in the yard. Again, American observers of this would scratch their heads and wonder, Is the British Army really quite as formidable as we think it is? There was certainly enough fodder in American minds to raise that as a question.
3: Do you believe the story that in trying to save Braddock, that Washington actually has two horses shot from under him and four bullet holes in his jacket?
4: Oh, yes. I mean, Washington was serving at that point as colonel of the virginia militia the virginia militia of course tagging along with general braddock and his british regulars and washington in large measure helps to rally and execute at least a half decent withdrawal of that expeditionary force you know keep them from being entirely annihilated by the french and their indian allies and washington does put himself at considerable risk i mean no one after that could ever question the personal physical courage of george washington what comes as a great disgruntlement to washington is that after all that he is turned down for a commission as an officer in the regular british forces one thing that george washington always aspired to was a military career and he wanted to do it as a british military officer and you would think wouldn't you that given the service that he renders In the French and Indian War, the British would be only too happy to commission a colonial like him as a very good example and an encouragement to other colonials. Instead, the British response is, we're not commissioning people like you. You're from far, far away. You're not part of a great family in Britain, and you certainly don't have the means by which to purchase a commission in the British army. If you've ever read James Boswell's journal from the 1760s, Boswell, a Scot who, like Washington, was very eager to try to obtain a commission in one of the guards' regiments in London. He petitioned, he badgered, he pestered, he begged, and he got nothing for his efforts, despite the fact that he's, strictly speaking, part of the landowning nobility of Scotland. Well, Washington was in an even worse position. He's a colonial. He's far away. He's not a great landowner. The British treat him with contempt. That contempt stays in Washington's mind. And in 1775, well, it's George Washington who is going to take command of Congress's new Continental Army and who is going to lead it eventually to victory against the British. I'm sure at some point, someone in the hierarchy of the British military must have slapped their hand against their forehead and said, what were we thinking? We could have had him on our side. But, of course, they didn't. There are such great stories about Washington in the Revolution. They bear telling and retelling. Just to give you an example, Washington was not much of an art. He was not much of a public speaker. And it's a rare moment when you see Washington in public exercising eloquence. He just was not that kind of man. He hadn't been trained to it. When someone asked him at one point about his education He described his education in one word, defective, and yet there comes a moment, and this is the moment just before the Battle of Trenton, when the enlistments of the Continental Army are about to expire, and Washington has them drawn up, regiment by regiment, and he addresses them as best he knows how, and and basically what he tells them is this, I understand that we have lost battles repeatedly. I understand that our numbers have been thinned we are suffering, we don't have adequate uniforms, we don't have food, and your enlistment's being ready to run out, you're eager to return to your families. However, if you will stay with us for just a month more, if you will participate in this great plan to attack the British, to surprise the British, you will at least have the thanks of all of your country. Now, there's an interesting moment here because these soldiers, at first, nobody stirs, and then you see this motion in the ranks of Washington's troops, people turning their heads, talking to each other, and they're saying things like, well, if you go, I'll go. And finally, some individuals step forward, then they step forward by twos, by fours, by dozens. Finally, the whole army steps forward. One of Washington's aides asks him, should I take down their names? In other words, to ensure that no one deserts afterwards. And Washington says, no, no, no. We may trust such men as these. It's really one of Washington's great moments of eloquence in the war.
3: I think that he actually is the one person that we probably would have lost without. He is
4: the indispensable man. There's no better word to use for George Washington this way. He's indispensable because he provides leadership of such steadiness. It just never seemed to be possible to disturb Washington, to make him despair. I mean, despite what he might have been thinking and writing privately the public face of Washington is always set firmly and utterly towards independence and towards victory. There never seems to be a moment when he doubts that this is going to happen. And he's able to communicate that to people. He's also great for how he recruits a wonderful group of young men around him. People like Henry Lawrence, Alexander Hamilton, the Marquis de Lafayette, who are just devoted to the man. And then there are the decisions that he makes which are so self-denying that in the 18th century, people could scarcely credit them. At the end of the revolution, George Washington is in command of an army which hasn't been paid. It hasn't been respected by the Continental Congress. There are members of that Congress who want to march on Philadelphia and teach Congress a lesson, and who knows, perhaps even make Washington their king. And Washington at Newburgh, New York, faces them down, And not only does he face down the officers who wanted him to take that kind of action against Congress, but he actually, at the end of 1783, once the peace treaty has been signed, he goes to where Congress is meeting in Annapolis, and he turns in his commission. He surrenders power. My goodness, Newt, in the 18th century, the idea that someone who had accumulated that much credibility, that much strength, who had an army behind him, an army that would do whatever he told them to do the idea that he would voluntarily surrender that power back to the civilian government of the American Republic was just astonishing. Nobody would have been surprised if he had decided to pull an Oliver Cromwell at that moment. In fact, they probably would have thought he was perfectly justified, but he doesn't. He walks away from power. And it's so astonishing that no one less than King George III says when he hears about this, if this be true, he is the greatest man of the age. That is the compliment that seals, at least in my mind, the extraordinary reputation of George Washington.
3: And it seems to me that that's almost precisely what Washington lived for.
4: Washington was a man of the most selfless integrity who governed himself in the strictest fashion, the strictest self-discipline, the strictest self-restraint, sometimes it was a little bit formidable. There were people who found George Washington to be very difficult to get close to. There is no record that I know of, of George Washington telling a joke. And actually, there's only one account I have ever come upon of Washington smiling or laughing And that was at a play in New York City when he was president of the United States. There was one moment when Governor Morris, it was something of a character. governor Morris had a bet with Alexander Hamilton that, as Morris said, he could get a rise out of George Washington. So the bet went like this. Morris, Washington, and Hamilton, they're all together at a dinner. And Hamilton's sitting on one side, and Governor Morris is on the other. And at one point, while the discussion and the conversation is going on at the table, Morris leans back, claps Washington on the back, and says to him, And wasn't it that way, old boy? And Washington turns and looks at him with this death stare, (laughs) like, Who do you think you are? And it was a typically Washingtonian moment. He was not a man that you trifled with. But when you were in a pinch, this was a man of such unimpeachable integrity that there was no one you wanted more to have on your side. And if he was on your side, you didn't really need anyone else on your side.
5: Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply. The
2: 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trial for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters— I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the campaign moment right now, wherever you're listening.
3: So as you look forward from today and you think about what it took to get here. What's your gut tell you? Are you an optimist? Are you a pessimist?
4: I look at certain circumstances and I'm a pessimist. But when I look at the overall arc of American history, I cannot help but be an optimist. One of the last things that Thomas Jefferson wrote before his death in 1826, in a letter he said that he believed that the course of the American Republic was now so set that the feeble engines of despotism could never set it back. He believed that the example of the American Republic had made it clear to the world that human beings were not born with saddles on their back. For others, they're better, so to speak, to ride, booted and spurred by the grace of God. That's hierarchy. Jefferson believed that all through his life. Washington also, in his farewell address, speaks a note of warning, but also speaks a note of optimism. And Lincoln, in a generation that comes after Washington and Jefferson. When Lincoln is born, remember, Thomas Jefferson is still President of the United States. Abraham Lincoln, likewise, believes that what the United States represents is the last best hope of Earth. And he looks forward to a day when, as he says at the end of his life, when the American landscape, reunited after this terrible civil war, will bloom like the Valley of Jehoshaphat. They had gone through crises that we have never begun to taste. We have seen critical moments in the life of our country, but we've never seen anything like a Civil War. We've never seen anything like the American Revolution. And thank God we have not. If Jefferson and Washington and Lincoln could, from out of those experiences, still see that rainbow of promise in the American experiment, then I believe that we should see it too. And I think that In a sense, John Adams was right when he said that American independence would be celebrated as the most memorable epoch in the history of America, and that it would be celebrated by generation after generation as a day of deliverance. And I think if we come to this 4th of July with questions, with doubts, with fears, I think we need to look to what those founders experienced and suffered and endured and yet came away with full of an optimism about the future as jefferson once wrote we place before mankind the common sense of the subject and i think we need to do that again i think we need to read that declaration again i think we need to reappropriate that declaration again i think we need As Lincoln himself said, we need to wash our garments in the blood of the revolution. We need to be rededicated to that proposition that he described at Gettysburg as being the central proposition that all men are created equal. And if we can do that, then, as Lincoln said, we will indeed experience a new birth of freedom and government of the people, by the people, for the people, will not perish from the earth. On those terms, yes, I am an optimist.
3: That's marvelous. It's poetry. Thank you. So, I really appreciate this. And I think this will last a long time and influence many people. One last thing before you go, Alan. Could you describe how fireworks displays started?
4: Fireworks were an old British tradition. The most splendid example of fireworks is the one for which Handel wrote the Royal Fireworks music. Is that right? Well, it was the celebration of British victories in early 18th century Europe. And for the celebrations of the victory, Handel composed music not only for the Royal Barge in the Thames, but for the fireworks. And so, you get the Royal Fireworks music. So, fireworks were nothing new at that point, And for Americans to adopt and appropriate fireworks was a perfectly normal thing for people in the English-speaking world. What's interesting is how much the fireworks persist as a way for Americans of celebrating it, because even Lincoln, in 1852, in his eulogy for Henry Clay, he talks about the Fourth of July as an occasion for, as he put it, burning firecrackers. So even up through Lincoln's Day, fireworks remain very much a part of the scene of celebrating American independence. Of course, we still do it today, and I'm looking forward to a good fireworks celebration for this 4th of July, too.
3: Thank you to my guest, Alan Gelzo. You can read more about the history of Independence Day on our show page at newtsworld.com. NewsWorld is produced by Gingrich 360 and iHeartMedia. Our executive producer is Debbie Myers. Our producer is Garnsey Sloan, and our researcher is Rachel Peterson. The artwork for the show was created by Steve Penley. Special thanks to the team at Gingrich 360. If you've been enjoying Newt's World, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcasts and both rate us with five stars and give us a review so others can learn what it's all about. Right now, Listeners of Newt's World can sign up for my three free weekly columns at gingrich360.com slash newsletter. I'm Newt Gingrich. This is Newt's World.
0: work.
1: Zumo Play.